Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We're going to pick up right where we left off. We're going to overlap just slightly from last Wednesday night and continuing on. I invite you all to do as I'm having to do every day. So open up the scriptures and pray through this and think about it. And that is just to lay aside preconceived notions, traditions, Not that they're bad, not that they are not legitimate or valid, but let our understanding of what the Lord has, our understanding of His Word, come from His Word, not from our presuppositions. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that You would teach us, and we would have ears to hear Your voice, Your teaching, Your will, Your desire for us. May Your will always supersede ours, always overcome the things that we think we know. And Lord, even if there are things in your word that we don't understand, if it is your word, we recognize it stands. So help us to know and understand these things. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 14, Acts chapter 2, But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. These men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Peter takes his stand. And I love how that is written, how Luke jotted this down, inspired by the Spirit to do so. He says, Peter taking his stand, or Peter took his stand with the eleven. Peter stood up. This phrase, taking his stand from the Greek histomai, histomai is exactly as it comes off here. Stepping up to the plate, taking his stand, standing on the promises, taking the podium. Peter is steadfast, he's resolute, he is certain of himself, and the last time we saw Peter standing in the scriptures, it was just outside of the door of the courtyard of Caiaphas. And then we saw him standing just inside the courtyard of Caiaphas, warming his hands by the fire. The last time we see Peter standing up, he is wobbly. He is denying Christ. Don't let this escape you. It was just 50 days earlier. Barely over a month, month and a half earlier, and Peter couldn't even say he knew Jesus. And now suddenly, he stands. Peter's a changed man. And it wasn't that he got a crash course in gospel preaching over those 50 days. Peter is a changed man. 1 Thessalonians 3.8, Paul said, For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. You want to really live? Stand up. Stand with confidence. Stand in the Lord. Stand on the foundation of Jesus. Yeah, but Rick, sometimes I'm uncertain. That's why you need the power of the Holy Spirit. As we talked about on Sunday. That's why we need His strength. That's what Peter now has. 
Peter takes his stand because Peter not only was filled with the Holy Spirit, but now having been baptized by the Holy Spirit, as we just saw in the previous verses. To read back to the beginning of the chapter. As the Holy Spirit came upon him powerfully, the dunamis that Jesus promised is now in and on and and overwhelming Peter. And he takes his stand. He's not out of control, but he is powerful. This is a powerful gospel presentation. By the way, he's no rabbi here. He's what the Greeks would call an euangelistes, where we get the word evangelism. He's an evangelist. If he was a rabbi, he would have sat down. Because rabbis would teach that way. They would come and they would sit down and their students, their pupils, their disciples would gather around and they would begin to teach. He's not a rabbi. He's not just filling the role of teacher here. He is the town crier. He's a herald. He stands up to announce good news of great joy. Peter takes his stand. He's running on full strength. The power of the Spirit. The flesh, Peter's flesh, still weak. But the Spirit, still willing, is now strong. In verse 19, he continues, he says, quoting Joel, I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter says, that's what you see going on here. He says it with such confidence. I got in trouble for that once. Had a fellow pastor come up to me after I was preaching one time and said, Rick, you, you, you're just sound, you're sounding way too sure of yourself. You need to give more options. <laughs> I said, I'm not sure of myself, not in the least, but I am sure of the Word of God. Amen. And I have no problem standing on God's Word. And that's what Peter's doing. He's declaring, and think about this, the Galilean fisherman is now preaching prophecy. Standing on Bible prophecy and he is absolutely 100% convinced that what's taking place before them is the fulfillment or at least the beginning of the fulfillment of Joel 2.28-32. through 32. This is what's taking place here. And he calls out this great prophecy. This is actually now picking up in verse 19 the second half of the last day's prophecy of Joel. It's a prophecy in two parts. We wouldn't have known that if we were in Joel's audience back when he gave the prophecy the first time. We would have heard the whole thing and thought, okay, it's all going to happen at once. It will take place. He's going to pour forth of his spirit. People are going to be prophesying and there will be wonders in the sky and on the earth below there will be signs of blood and fire and vapor. It's all going to happen at once. Boom! The prophecy will be fulfilled. And yet Bible prophecy does not always work that way. In fact, oftentimes it doesn't. What do you mean? The first half was fulfilled, or at least began to be fulfilled that day. That is verses 17 and 18. The second half of the prophecy has not even yet been fulfilled. That is verses 19 and 20. And then you've got verse 21, which is being fulfilled throughout. So that one is going on. Began then, is continuing now. But let me give you an example of how this works. We talked about this back when we studied through Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, the Messiah speaking, because He's anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. 
He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Jesus read that in the synagogue in Nazareth. Luke chapter 4 tells us that after reading that, he stopped right there. And we're told that he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Partially because he didn't finish the sentence. Because Jesus read to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, which is Isaiah 60, verse 2a. It doesn't get to be, he just stops. Why? Because that much of the prophecy was being fulfilled in his first coming. The rest of the prophecy will be fulfilled in his second coming. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 2, continuing, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, and then it describes Israel being reestablished in the kingdom. Well, that's not yet. That didn't happen in his first coming. So prophecy can work that way. We see that in Daniel chapter 9. We see a prophecy go a certain distance and then stop, and it will pick up again later. We see that also in Daniel chapter 11 and various other places in the Hebrew Scriptures. So, Peter's just doing the same thing. He's quoting Joel here. And he's saying this is what's going on. He quotes the entire prophecy, but only the first half, verses 17 and 18, are initially finding fulfillment. They would continue to be fulfilled throughout the church age. In other words, there is no end spot for that part of the prophecy until Jesus comes. As we talked about on Sunday, that is ongoing. The baptism of the Holy Spirit that began that day on Pentecost in the church, started off the church, is still underway. If you don't see it, if we're not aware of it, it's simply because we've quenched it. We've ignored it. We're uncomfortable with it. It's not our tradition. But it is ongoing. The power of God, the strength of the Lord, available to us today. The second half, verses 19 and 20, is yet to come. And in fact, it speaks specifically of the state of things just before the second coming of Jesus to usher in the kingdom age. Think about it. Wonders in the sky above. Signs on the earth below. Blood, fire, vapor of smoke. The sun turned into darkness. The moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. Before the day of the Lord. So coming into that period of tribulation, these clearly signify tribulation events. You all know what I mean by the tribulation. Your Bible students do. If you don't, go listen to the Revelation study. We explain it over and over. The tribulation, that seven year period of time where God pours out His wrath on a Christ-rejecting world at the end of this age, and the Bible is absolutely clear about it, And for those who would say, well, how do we know that's going to happen? Because every other prophecy that was given, that was fulfilled, was fulfilled literally. So we believe this will be fulfilled literally as well. No reason that it shouldn't if God is consistent. If He keeps His word. But these do not precede, please understand, these do not precede the rapture of the church. That is the church being called home, being called up to heaven. The wonders in the sky, the signs in the earth, the blood, the fire, the vapor of smoke, the sun dark, the moon blood. These are not precursors of the rapture of the church. They are precursors of the return of Christ. I know people are getting excited. And I brought this up a couple of times uh, recently. These signs are greater than the naturally occurring blood moons and the eclipse of the sun that we've seen over the last year and a half. 
Not saying there's not something to this blood moon tetrad. Right now the jury's out. We'll see. I'm completely open to this being something, a sign of God. And he certainly has stirred up the church with it, which makes me excited right there. But we don't know for certain. We do know for certain that what Peter quotes of Joel, the last half of this prophecy, is an end times prophecy of the tribulation. How do you know? Keep your finger there and turn back to the book of Zephaniah. Just go left a little ways. It's in the Minor Prophets toward the end of the Hebrew Scriptures, right after Habakkuk. Zephaniah. Chapter 1, verse 14. And listen to what the prophet Zephaniah proclaims. See if it lines up with what Joel proclaimed that Peter is quoting. Zephaniah, chapter 1, verse 14. Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so they will walk like the blind. Because they have sinned against the Lord. And their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of His jealousy. He will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. That's serious business. Blood, fire, vapor of smoke, the sun going dark. The moon turned to blood. Revelation chapter 6 verse 12 tells us, I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood. Well, that's at the beginning of the tribulation. That happens in the first three and a half of those, of those seven years. So that has not happened yet. What's amazing to me, you might say, well, if that hasn't happened, then why is verse 21 at the end? And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Shouldn't that be like in the middle? What's happening right now? Here's what's amazing about grace. Even during the great cataclysmic events of the tribulation, God is still saving people. Even those who miss the rapture of the church, who are not caught up when Jesus calls the faithful home, they still have an opportunity to be saved. God's grace is that big. No, well then I'll just wait until that happens. I'll just wait for the tribulation. If all cuts loose and falls apart and your church is gone, then I'll know and I'll believe. If you can't believe right now, when the Spirit is active and at work in the world, what makes you think you'll believe then? It's never been easier in all of history to accept Jesus. Never been easier to believe in Him. It will be difficult then. There will be delusion, there will be death, there will be disaster and destruction. So don't wait. But there will also be the ongoing grace of God, the salvation of God to everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. They will be saved. So Peter is preaching the fulfillment that has only just begun. You see, you thought Karen Carpenter wrote those words. No. (laughs) Peter is now singing, we've only just begun. Verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. 
Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Now, stop right there. Peter now launches into a three-point gospel sermon. This is the gospel. If you've been uncertain, if you want to share the gospel, but you don't know how to do that, all you've got to do is read exactly what Peter says here. Three points to this gospel. He first starts with point number one. He goes straight to the heart of the gospel, which is the person of Jesus. Note that. He goes, men of Israel, listen to these words, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the Nazarene. Why does he say the Nazarene? Is that his denominational tie? Is that what that is? No. He's from Nazareth. Peter says that because Jesus' name was a common name. He's reminding them. Jesus, you know, the rabbi from Nazareth who did all these amazing things, he's the one I'm talking about. He's the point of the entire gospel. And he calls the people gathering there, I believe in the temple courts, calls themselves as witnesses. You saw what he did. You were witnesses to this. You can't deny what you saw take place right here. You saw, you know, this was just last month. This Jesus of Nazareth, he said, was attested to you by signs and miracles and wonders. You saw this. The person of Jesus is point number one in the gospel. You don't have the gospel without Jesus. There is no good news without Jesus. So the point is the person of Jesus. And they're all witnesses. Now, I believe that our entire world still witnesses the work of Jesus. And I believe we can call people to that. We can say, hey, Jesus has been attested to you by various signs and wonders and miracles, things that God has performed through Him, things that you have seen. What have we seen? What would the world be like without the church? Oh, right off the bat, people would say, oh, a whole lot better, because those Christians are whacked. Really? You wouldn't have hospitals. You wouldn't have schools. So much of the compassion, so much of the grace, the love that has been propagated in this world has come through the church. It's come through Christians. People empowered by the Spirit of Jesus, you know this. And as a matter of fact, more of our friends and family know of the reality of Jesus than don't know. They just don't want to admit it. And that's why I've said over and over to you, when you are preaching the gospel, when you are sharing the gospel with someone, take them to Jesus. Whether you're talking about life or faith or spiritual issues or morality or politics, if you're talking about heaven or salvation, take them to Jesus. Do not give them a creed. Do not tell them how your church functions. You tell them about Jesus. And if they never accompany you to church, but find Jesus and are saved, hallelujah. If they end up at Life Church, that's cool. They go to Living Word, right on. They find Jesus at CTK, hallelujah. You just tell them about Jesus. And if they come here, that's okay too. Because it's all about Him. And remember, the Holy Spirit is now giving Peter utterance to glorify Jesus Christ. The Father attested all these things. By the way, back in John chapter 10, verse 24, we're told the Jews then gathered around Jesus and were saying to Him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you 
and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. Remember what he told the servants of John the Baptist? John's in prison, he sends his two guys over to meet Jesus. And they come and they say, John asked us to double check with you. Are you the one or should we look for someone else? And Jesus said, what do you see? You go back and tell John that the blind receive their sight, the deaf are hearing, the lame are walking, and the dead are raised. You tell him that. And that's what Peter's tapping into here. The person of Jesus. And baptized with the Holy Spirit, Peter is doing exactly what Jesus said the Spirit would do. John 16, 14, He will glorify me. So Peter goes straight to Jesus. Point number one of the Gospel, the person of Jesus. Verse 23, continuing, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Conviction. I love Peter. Filled with the Spirit. Because he's, he's confident. And he's not holding back. He goes to point two now of the Gospel, and that is the predetermined crucifixion. The person of Jesus is where you start, but you take them quickly to the crucifixion. Because without the crucifixion, you do not have the good news. And note that Peter says it was by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Well, how do we know? How do we know God planned for all that? Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy precisely fulfilled in the crucifixion. Genesis 3.15, Psalm 22, Isaiah 50, Isaiah 53, Daniel 9, Zechariah 11.12, Amos 8. And so many more prophecies that speak directly to the piercing of His side. That speak to the betrayal of His friends. That talk about the lifting up of Jesus. That designate the cross. We know God predetermined this because He's been telling us this. He told us for 1,500 years before it took place. The predetermined plan of God. And the Jewish people sitting there listening to this could hear Peter's words and go, yeah, it does look an awful lot like what we thought was coming. It does look an awful lot like what the prophets said. We didn't understand. It didn't make sense how this Messiah could be a suffering servant but he sure does fit the bill of the suffering servant God's word in painstaking detail tells us that he predetermined the crucifixion of Christ who Revelation 13.8 tells us was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world verse 24 Point three, then Peter goes on, he says, But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. The person of Jesus, the predetermined crucifixion, and thirdly, the promise of the resurrection. That's the gospel. The gospel is all about Jesus, who was crucified and resurrected. There's the message. That's it. I mean, it really is that simple. You get those three things down, and you are a gospel preacher. And you can tell people about the gospel anytime. Jesus, crucified, resurrected. And by the way, Peter says the resurrection ended, note this, the agony of death. The agony of death. The Greek word for agony is interesting. It's odin. The odin. 
The agony of death. What is Odin? Literally translated, birth pangs. The Odin. The ever-increasing pain of death is what Peter is saying. The resurrection put an end to the birth pains. The resurrection put a stop to the agony of death. And yes, it is the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 6. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. Those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. Jesus said, for nation will rise against nation. By the way, have you been watching Russia and Persia? That is Iran. And with this whole Iranian deal, just keep an eye on these things because Ezekiel tells us very clearly, very plainly, that there is going to be an attempted invasion of Israel by Gog Magog, which is Russia, aligning itself with Persia, which is Iran, and several other countries to the north of Israel. And we're seeing this alignment crystallizing. Even as Turkey itself, one time a passive friend of Israel, now pretty bitterly opposed to Israel. It is all lining up. Well, Jesus said, but, but that's all that's going to happen. Kingdom's going to rise against kingdom. In various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these are merely the beginning of the Odin, the birth pangs. Now that makes sense to me. Jesus says birth pains. They increase with severity, uh, intensity, frequency. That's how a woman knows she's about to give birth. They get closer and closer together and they get more and more painful. And so when it comes to all of these end times things that Jesus describes, the earthquakes and the famines and the, the, the sea rising and perplexing people about what's going on there and all that Jesus described, well, birth pains, yeah, they're happening more frequently, they're happening with greater intensity, and they are. Well, that makes sense to me. It does not make sense right off the bat that Peter would use that same exact word to talk about death. God raised him up again, putting an end to the birth pangs of death. Or does it make sense? In an individual person's life who does not know Jesus, the older you get, the more frequent and the more severe and the more intense the agony of death. The more it's worried about. The more serious it becomes. As your mortality becomes ever increasingly more real when you do not have Jesus. Furthermore, I would add that to the entire world. That with each successive generation on planet Earth, it is increasingly causing more distress, more dismay, more terror. What is death? That we live in a culture that is more afraid of death now than ever before. And in fact, as America becomes increasingly non-Christian, post-Christian, it will also become increasingly more afraid of death, the agony of death, the Odin, the birth pangs of death, getting closer and closer together and more and more terrifying and more and more painful. The word's perfect. Let me put it this way. What do global warming, ISIS, and the global jihad, porous borders, health care, war, famine, earthquakes, and disasters all have in common, and it's one thing, the Odin of death, the fear of death. Take death out of the picture, none of that stuff's a big deal. An earthquake is just a wild ride. (laughs) Right? ISIS, 
They're a bunch of pansies. Okay, kill me, whatever. Think you can end what's going on here? Global warming? Whatever. (laughs) Peter said the Lord's going to destroy the world with fire. There's your global warming. (laughs) But the message of the gospel, good news, no more Odin. No more agony of death. No more fear, no more worry, no more fret. Yes, we lose people, we miss them. I told Cheryl, my, my grandmother, Grandma Irene, I adore her. She died in 1999. And just the other day, her picture's on our fridge, and I walked by and I looked at it, and I said, you know what, hon, I miss her. I really miss her. She was the sweetest lady I'd ever known. And she was sweet all her life. She wasn't one of these who got sweeter when she got older, you know, and her kids grown up went, I don't know who she is. That's not the woman who raised me. No, she, she was always sweet. And I miss her. I do. I have friends who have gone on before me. I miss them. I do. If I were to lose Cheryl, and I told you this recently, last summer, and in all the surgeries and stuff that she's dealt with, I've, I've had those thoughts. I, I don't know what it would be like without her. I don't want to live without her. But I'll tell you what it won't be like. Agony. It won't be agony. She goes before me. It will not be agony. Why, Rick? Because the resurrection of Jesus put an end to the agony of death. The resurrection of Jesus. For those who reject the resurrection, the Odin remains. But for those who believe who receive the resurrection of Jesus. Peter wrote, 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. No more Odin. And you can use that, by the way, when you're giving the gospel to someone. Say, listen, it's all about Jesus. And He died for you, the crucifixion. And He rose again and He ended Odin. I'll be like, what? And I'm dead serious when I say, dead serious, that's funny. I'm serious when I say, talk about the agony of death. You as a believer in Jesus have nothing to fear, but an unbeliever has a lot to fear. And you can tell an unbeliever right now, I can alleviate for you all fear of death. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. And there is nothing you have to worry about. And as you grow older, and I know many of you senior saints, Don and I have had the conversation already. Emily may not know this. Maybe I shouldn't have said anything. Don, Don pulls me aside and goes, hey, listen, I want to talk to you about my memorial service. I'm like, dude. Really? He's got a smile on his face. You know? And, and it so blesses me because I'm surrounded by people who know. Now, we don't want Don to go away. So I'm just saying, come Lord Jesus, before Don goes with Lord Jesus. You know? Because you want to know the real reason why? Because the dead in Christ will rise first, and I don't want him going before me. <laughs> no more Odin. No more agony of death. And if you have lost someone who you love, someone close to you, let me remind you of that. That the resurrection of Jesus means no more. No more agony. That's the gospel. That's our message. 
And by the way, Peter says here, it was impossible for Jesus to be held by death. That word literally means by the cords of death. He could not be held. Why? Isaiah 25 verse 8 says, He will swallow up for all time death. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. He will remove the reproach of His people from all the earth. Listen, for, listen, for the Lord has spoken. Why is it that death couldn't hold Jesus? Was it because He's God? Yeah. But it was more. It was because the Lord had spoken. And God keeps His word. When the Lord speaks, you can guarantee it will come to pass. It will be true. Jesus knew the Hebrew Scriptures. He inspired them. He knew the word. It's His word. And He had spoken that death would not hold Him. He had spoken through the Hebrew prophets of His own resurrection. When God speaks His word, He keeps His word. You can count on it. Now check this out. He gives this gospel message. That's how He kind of starts this whole sermon out. But for those who reject the very notion of resurrection, and there would be many in this crowd, you know, the the heady philosophical Greeks, the sad sack Sadducees, who didn't believe in a resurrection, which is why they were sad, you see. Peter now gives a stirring exegetical Bible study of Psalm 16. Listen to it through, picking up in verse 25. For David says of him, of Jesus... I saw the Lord always in my presence. He is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. There's your living hope that Peter talked about. Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then Peter goes on, Brethren, I may confidently say to you, regarding the patriarch David, who said this, who wrote this, Psalm 16, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet, and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath, To see one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. That he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. He's pointing to the apostles now. We all saw him. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself, that is David, says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ and Messiah, this Jesus who you crucified. Bam! That's so awesome. One of the greatest sermons ever preached, and it takes about three minutes. I know you're saying, Rick, why can't you do that? (laughs) The whole teaching, this brief teaching, is awesome theology it is spot on the results are stunning 
But before we even look at the results, go back, think this through with me. Peter's interpretation and his application of Psalm 16 is airtight. It is so well organized, his thoughts. So perfectly presented by the strength, by the power of the Holy Spirit. You could say it's so airtight, his hermeneutic is hermeneutically sealed. (laughs) It's a little theology joke for you there. He starts now with a Davidic confidence. Peter begins by quoting David. Quoting David saying, you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor let your Holy One undergo decay. Quoting David saying, I won't be left for dead. I won't be left for dead. Death can't hold me. David's writing the psalm. Can you imagine what joy must have filled his heart when he realized that though he would die, he would not be left? That God would not forget him in Sheol? A Davidic confidence. And Peter quotes this hero of Israel saying, I won't be left for dead. And yet that was 1,500 years before. And my friends, David was dead. His body decaying for a thousand years. Amazing. Not 1,500 years, a thousand years. His body was in decay, in the tomb, right there in Jerusalem. In fact, that's what Peter says. Note that. He he both died and was buried, verse 29, and his tomb is with us to this day. Want to go see it? I can show you the tomb. We could pop open the ossuary and there would be nothing but bones in there. Why? Because they didn't have Twinkies. (laughs) To preserve the body. (laughs) But David, David spoke prophetically. You will not... Leave me in Sheol. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And here Peter reveals who the Holy One is. Jesus. David's talking about Jesus. David's confidence that he would not be left behind in Sheol was because the Holy One of God, Messiah, would not see decay. Because Jesus is resurrected, I will be resurrected. There's my hope. How do you know you're going to be resurrected, Rick? Because Jesus was. Because God did not allow His Holy One, Jesus Christ, to see decay. But wait. It's much deeper than that. It's more than David writing this. David realizing he would be resurrected. David saying, your Holy One didn't see decay. And prophesying about Jesus. It's not only David's confidence in the Holy One. It is David speaking by the Holy One. This is profound to me. That prophetically in Psalm 16, David is not writing down his own words, his own thoughts. He is writing down the thoughts of Christ. Inspired by Jesus, he is writing, I believe, I think, exactly what Jesus was thinking when between his death and resurrection, he descended into Sheol. That Jesus revealed to David to write down a thousand years before exactly what his heart would be thinking when he himself, Jesus, descended into Sheol. That is, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, Sheol, nor will you let your Holy One undergo decay. Not uh, Not David talking about Jesus, 
but David quoting Jesus here. By the way, the word there, Hades, if it's translated that, verse 27, that's good. That's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word, Sheol. If your translation, if you're reading a King James Bible and it says hell, that is a wrong translation. Let me be absolutely clear. Jesus didn't go to hell. Hell is reserved for the devil and his angels. Hell is a place of everlasting torment. Hell is not Hades. Hell is not Sheol. How do you know that, Rick? I'll tell you in a minute. But first understand that I know that this was Jesus speaking and not David. Because of what Peter told us in 1 Peter 1.11. He said the prophets sought to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Peter nailed it. Peter said the prophets weren't just talking about Christ, they were talking by Christ. Jesus was talking through them. That's how we get the prophecies. When you go through the Old Testament, you're not hearing about, you're hearing through, by. Jesus is the one teaching us, which is marvelous. Jesus knew He would not be abandoned to Sheol. He knew He would not undergo decay. So why did He go down? Isaiah 61 verse 1, we already read, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Well, I thought that was just a spiritual thing, Rick. It is. It's spiritual in that those who are captive to sin, prisoners to immoral living, are rescued. Absolutely. But it's literal in that when Jesus died, He literally went to Sheol to release the captives. To bring them liberty. To bring them freedom. And He brought them out. Now, if I've lost you, let me back up. In Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, Jesus taught that Sheol has two regions to it. On one side, there's paradise for those who die believing in God, who died in faith before Jesus came. On the other side, there's torment for those who died in rebellion. In between, there's an impassable chasm that cannot be crossed. Can't go from one side to the other or from this side to that side. It's the way it is. Paradise over here, torment over here, and no way to get from one side to the other. Jesus described it for us. Oh, Rick, I've read Luke 16 and it's a parable. Where does it say that? Go ahead and look it up if you'd like. If you don't want to waste the time, I'll tell you right now, Jesus never called it a parable. He didn't teach it like it was a parable. He taught it as truth. He never set it aside as some kind of a metaphorical picture. And so I believe that he was describing for us Hades, Sheol, a place that had both a paradise and a torment aspect to it. When he died, confident that he would not be left in Sheol, he went down to the paradise side, and there he released, Ephesians 4 tells us, those who are in captivity. Brought them out. Brought their spirits home to be with the Lord. Well, how do you know he went to the paradise side? Because... He said to the thief on the next cross over, Luke 23, 43, Today you shall be with me where? In paradise. That's where he was going. And that's where he went to bring out those who were captives. Ephesians 4, 8 through 10. He went to set the captives free. He freed them. He shuts down then, effectively, the paradise side of Sheol. It's unnecessary anymore. No more Odin. No more agony of death. You don't go to the paradise site and wait and wait and wait. Now when a person dies in faith, their spirit goes directly home to be with the Lord. 
their body goes in the earth or their ashes go in the urn. By the way, you cannot earn your way to heaven. Just remember that. Just want to be clear about that. Your spirit goes home to be with the Lord. Body down, spirit up. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.8, We're of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and be at home with the Lord. That's what happens. What's the deal with the body and the spirit? There's a, I, I, I actually took it out of my notes because I was looking. I'm going, it's going to take me too long tonight. But I'll tell you quickly, 1 Thessalonians 4, read it, talks about the fact that God will bring with Him those who have, quote, fallen asleep. That is, those who have died. But it also says He's going to bring with Him, right? So their spirits are going to come back with Him. How can He do that except that they are with Him right now? Jesus will come and bring with Him the spirits of those who have passed on before us. But it also says, and then the dead in Christ will rise. Well, the word dead is corpses. Necros in the Greek. The bodies will rise. He's going to bring with them the spirits, quickly glorify them, and off they go. And then we who are alive will be caught up and meet them in the clouds, and so we shall forever be with the Lord. No more Odin. Okay? Let's let's make that kind of a a saying among us, and Sunday morning people will be like, what are they talking about? (laughs) No more Odin, man. (laughs) So we have a Davidic confidence because he is speaking by the Spirit of the Lord. We also have a descendant's coronation. Verse 30. Look at verse 30. He says, And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, right there, man, Peter's just, he's on fire. He just quotes yet another psalm, Psalm 132. Verse 10, For the sake of David your servant, do not turn away the face of your anointed, your Mashiach, your Christ. The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body I will set upon your throne. Well now Peter quotes this. Peter, the unschooled ordinary fisherman. Peter functioning by the strength, the power, the dunamis of the Holy Spirit is delivering a profound theology here. Amazing. Of the lineage of Messiah. And now he ties in yet a third psalm. Verse 34, Peter says, It was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So now there's a divine conversation. A Davidic confidence. A descendant's coronation. Now a divine conversation. He says, The Lord said to my Lord. So awesome. That is mind-boggling. The Lord in the Hebrew, Yahweh. And by the way, this is Psalm 110. Psalm 110, verse 1, is what Peter just quoted. The Lord said to my Lord. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai. I thought they were the same. They are. Yahweh is Adonai. Father is talking to Son. Yahweh speaking to Yeshua, Jehovah to Jesus, Father to Son, Yahweh to Adonai. Peter pulls this one out of his hat and begins to speak about this psalm, quoting David yet again. And by the way, Jesus quoted this exact same psalm, Psalm 110. In Matthew 12, 36, he quotes it to the crowds. So Jesus says to the crowds, so what do you think of this? The Lord said to my Lord, 
sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Who's talking to who? Jesus basically says. And we're told that the crowds were mesmerized. They just marveled. They listened to Jesus teach and they're like, wow. Whether they fully understood or not, they were just blown away. They were mesmerized. We're told in Matthew 22:44 that he says the same thing to the Pharisees and they were muzzled. I mean, it just shut them up. Tell you what, I'll answer any questions you want, but answer me this. When David writes of the Lord speaking to my Lord, saying, sit at my right hand, who's talking there? What's that mean? And the Pharisees are like, Nicodemus, you want to take a shot at this? They were completely shut down. Now Peter pulls it out, and in the context of the resurrection... For this primarily Jewish audience, it clicks. It clicks. They are not just mesmerized. They are not muzzled. No, they see Messiah. In the Psalms, they see Messiah from the mouth of their own hero of faith, King David. It all comes together. Why does it all come together here, but it didn't before? Why didn't we see all these people baptized when Jesus was on the earth, when He was teaching, when He was preaching? Why didn't they all come to faith right then? Well, some did. You know that. A handful did. Here and there, people followed after him. And, and you know, by the time we get to this day, it's 120 disciples. After three and a half years of ministry, 120. By American standards, that's a small church. Why all of a sudden now, when this big dumb fisherman opens his mouth... Is the message so powerful? Look at verse 33. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, Peter says, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. What's happening right now is not me. What's going on in this place, Peter says, is the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what you're seeing. That's what you're experiencing. And that's why, by the way, these words are cutting to your heart. It is the Holy Spirit at work here. Peter, who 50 days before could not even confess Christ, now filled with the Spirit, is blowing people away by the power. He's speaking with full power. I know I said that last Wednesday. I said it again on Sunday. So many of us are running around at half power. The Holy Spirit brings full power. The baptism of the Spirit. Not something to be afraid of. This is a biblical concept. And yes, the church has messed it up in various ways. Either by running away from it or exalting it to being something that it's not. The baptism of the Holy Spirit simply provides the power, the strength of God to do what we cannot do. And so I'm telling you, what Peter does right here, you can do. What happened for Peter in this sermon, as he preaches, the response, the igniting of all those hearts, was because of the Holy Spirit there. The Word of God and the power of the Spirit are a dynamic combination. But if you only have one or the other you're not going to be as powerful. You're going to struggle along. Word and Spirit together. And verse 37, here's the response. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? They're now pierced. Same word that's used of Jesus when Jesus was pierced. The word is nuso. 
in the Greek, when the sword went into his side, when the nails went into his hands, when he was pierced through for our transgressions, the Greek word nuso means to be pierced. But here it's slightly different. It's not nuso, it's kata nuso. The people were kata nusoed to the heart. What's the difference? Kata means from. So they were pierced to the heart, but they were pierced from another source. And the source of the piercing was the Spirit of the living God. The Holy Spirit now pierces their hearts. He gets in. And so they say, what shall we do? What do we do with this? Tell us what to do, they cry out. And it's the same thing they asked John the Baptist three and a half years earlier. They said to John, what shall we do? He answers them in Luke 3, verse 11. The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. What shall we do, they ask, to the last of the Old Testament prophets under the law? What shall we do? And John, being the last Old Testament prophet, speaking of the coming of new things, but still under the law, says, here's what you do, do stuff. Do stuff. What do we do, John? Well, share. And if you got food, share that. And if you've got an extra tunic, give it to someone. Do stuff. It's kind of weird. You know, honestly, you think about John the Baptist. He's got the ear of all these people. They're coming out. They're repenting. And, and they're like, what do we do, John? And he says, you got an extra coat? Give it to that guy. Well, that's profound. What, what is John doing? Listen, he's preparing them. And doing stuff always prepares us, doesn't it? When you're going to have guests over, people over for dinner, don't you do stuff around the house to get ready? John's whole entire ministry, his baptism, the baptism of John, was a baptism of preparation. Get ready. So it makes sense that John, when they said, what shall we do? John says, share. And offer food and take care of each other. Begin living a different lifestyle. Begin acting this out. Begin doing. Why? Because it would prepare them for what was about to happen. Peter's answer is completely different. What shall we do, they cry? Verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What do we do, Peter? Change. Turn around. Repent. What you need to do in this moment is go 180 degrees in the opposite direction. From what? Now here's the key. From who you thought Jesus was to who you now know Jesus is. I'll tell you why repentance doesn't work oftentimes in people's lives. It's because they're repenting from sin rather than repenting to Jesus. If I repent from sin, I'm just saying no. And we all know how the Just Say No campaign worked. It doesn't work. Just saying no still leaves you wide open. Just say yes to Jesus. A true repentance of the heart is a repentance that spins you around and has you going now in the direction of Jesus, toward Jesus, toward the person of Jesus who can save you. Repent! He says, 
And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. Go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. That's repentance. Not from sin, but to Jesus. Now you might read this and say, okay, so does baptism save me? Because I see it says repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. So does baptism save me? And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it's kind of a two for one deal that day anyway. Right? Does baptism save me? I think I already answered that, but let me say it again. Jesus saves you. Jesus saves you. Jesus fills you with His Spirit. You turn to Jesus, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, so that no man may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We are saved by grace. We are saved by the act of Jesus in the crucifixion and the resurrection, the gospel that we just went over. That's what saves us. But he says, get baptized. So if that's what saves me, why get baptized? Because baptism is a memorial, is a memorable outward symbol of the inward miracle. And it's beautiful. I, I love baptism. I gotta tell you, I, I have never, I have never been involved with, seen, or experienced a baptism that didn't move me in profound ways. I've seen a lot of sprinklings that didn't really move me. No offense. But the picture is completely different. Baptizo, to immerse. That's what the word means. Just saying what the word means. To immerse. And when you see somebody baptized, the picture is perfect of what Jesus did spiritually that we cannot do, of the grace that He poured out. What happens is we go into the water and we are buried into His crucifixion and death. And then we are raised to walk as in a newness of life, resurrected. Buried with Christ in baptism, resurrected to walk in a new life. It is an awesome, awesome picture. And we, forgive the pun, but we watered it down over the years when we said, well, let's do away with that. We don't really have room in the sanctuary for a big pool. So let's just go with an easier route. Or really what happened was the translators of the King James Bible came along and they ran across this word baptizo. Hey, King. This is my paraphrase of the events, but this is kind of how it happened. We're translating scriptures here in this new version, this authorized version that you want us to translate. Problem. We have this word baptizo. It's a Greek word. It means immerse, but we don't immerse anymore. In the Holy Catholic Church, we were no longer immersing. So what do we do with this word? They made a transliteration of it. And baptizo became baptism. So they could tell all the people, that's what we do. When we sprinkle you, we baptize you. And that's why you hear of of all kinds of different people referring to sprinkling as baptism. It's not. And again, you know, before you think, okay, so Rick is trying to say that I am not legitimate as a Christian. Because I was sprinkled. (laughs) Jesus saves you. Faith in God's grace is where your salvation begins. Not baptism. But, but, the symbol itself, the command of Christ was full immersion. Baptizo, to submerge, to be completely overwhelmed, to dunk. That's what the word means. Rantizo is the Greek word that means sprinkle. And the word rantizo is not used a single time in a single act of conversion throughout the book of Acts. 
It's always baptizo. So why get baptized? Because it's a beautiful picture. God gave us two memorials. Clark said this on Sunday. God gave us two memorials. Two sacraments, if you will. Communion, to remember Christ, celebrate what He did and look forward to His coming, and baptism, so that we can have the experience of being buried like He was and raising up to walk in a new life. And my question to you is, who wouldn't want to do that? Why wouldn't you? Well, because I was sprinkled. Well, good for you. But Jesus said, get baptized. Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you. And listen, water baptism, I'm not going to harp on this much longer. But water baptism, gang, is a choice that a believer makes. It's not someone, something that someone chooses for you. And I've had many times conversations with people who are sprinkled as infants. And they say, you know, I, I would get baptized, but you know, my parents sprinkled me and that's kind of a really important special thing. Hey, that's great. That's great for you and your parents. It's wonderful that your parents wanted to dedicate themselves to you and, and to, to make this choice. But they made the choice. You didn't. Believer's baptism is what the Bible teaches. You make the choice. You choose, and in the water, you go. And you're going to see this throughout the book of Acts. The baptism is a choice made by someone who comes into faith. Someone who repents and says, I believe. The Ethiopian eunuch, who we'll get to in in just a few chapters. He's there with with Philip, and and he he sees water. He goes, hey, here's water. What's to keep me from being baptized? And into the water they go, because he chose it. It was his choice, nobody else's. Baptism exemplifies a faith decision that has already happened in your heart. It's across the board. It's for everyone. And verse 39, I'll stop harping, says, For the promise is for you and your children, and I'm so thankful he said this, for all who are far off, off, off. (laughs) 2,000 years down the line, bridge, fellowship, fellowship, fellowship. The promise is yours, 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 yours. It's still running. It's still our promise to as many who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. And with many other words, He solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them. And by the way, that's comforting to me because it means Peter did preach longer than three minutes. And He said, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received His word were baptized. And that day, there were added about 3,000 souls. I love that. 3,000 people baptized in water began a new life on that day. A new life that started the moment they believed. The baptism just was that outward expression of what had happened in their hearts. And they all started new on Pentecost. On Shavuot. Which, by the way, is also called the Feast of First Fruits. We had 3,000 first fruits that day. Now, now listen, they didn't come out of the water fruity. They came out of the water fresh. They didn't become Californians, they became clean. No offense to my California brethren. They didn't become granola, they became brand new. So they're the first fruits, the beginnings of a whole new breed of people. And you just read about it right there. These 3,000, or perhaps 3,120, but this group right here are a new breed of people. 
No one had ever existed like these people existed. Ever before. But I'll tell you, countless multiplied billions of people for the last 2,000 years have become part of this new breed. Born again. Born to an everlasting life. Filled with the indwelling Holy Spirit of the living God unlike anybody had ever been before. Do you know how unique that makes you? How special to the Lord? Does it make us more special than the lost? Let me put it this way. I'm more special now than I was when I was lost. But I'll tell you what, the lost are so special to the Lord that He died for them before they even chose Him. An amazing time, an amazing moment happened. Galatians 3.27 says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ. By the way, that's another thing I love about baptism is it's all-encompassing. I'm clothed with Christ. I come out of the water just soaked in Jesus. So what does it mean back in verse 38, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? I kind of brushed right over that one. Some people say, well, that is the moment that the Holy Spirit comes and indwells you. And I've even preached before, if you're uncertain about whether or not the Holy Spirit actually lives in you, get baptized. Because Peter said, you know, you have a guarantee there. You know for certain that when you're baptized that you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So He comes and indwells you. But others say, no, 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 Rick. It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit that this is talking about here. Chuck Smith taught that during his life. That when you're baptized in water, you can receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit as well. So which is it? Do we receive the indwelling of the Spirit? Or do we receive the baptism of the Spirit? This is, in my opinion, the most important thing that I can tell you right here and now about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, and the spiritual gifts, and all of it. This is the most important thing. So listen closely. Peter said, Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He did not say gifts. He said gift. One gift. Which one? No, you missed the point. The Holy Spirit is the gift. The point is not the supernatural signs. The point is not the fruit that begins to appear in my life because of His presence. The point is the presence. The point is the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift. Me, the Lord would say. You get me. And we're like, wait, do I get tongues? Do I get healings? Mercies? Miracles? What? What do I get? What gift do I get? There's nothing worse than Christmas morning handing a child a present and having the child open it and going, I want what he got. And yet people do it in the church all the time. Well, he's obviously more spiritual than I am because he's got tongues and all I've got is interpretation. Why don't people get excited about interpretation? I think that'd be great. I'm an interpreter. He gets to talk and all this stuff. I don't even know what's going to happen. But then I get to tell you what he says. That's all I have, you know. We get so focused on the gifts. We make it all about the signs, all about the gifts, the fruit, the, the, the exciting manifestations. And the whole time, God is saying, look, it's about me. 
you receive the gift of me. Jesus said in Luke 11.13, If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Not the spiritual gifts. Hey, the spiritual gifts are wonderful. It's how we have the power and strength to minister to one another in the body and to take the Gospel out to a lost world. I love the spiritual gifts. We will talk about those. And God's got all kinds of gifts for you. But the greatest of these, the one that matters most, is Him. The gift of the Holy Spirit. God is not into systematic theology, not like we are. He's into relationship. And so He offers, He promises the gift of the Holy Spirit. Just like He said to Abram all those many years ago, Genesis 15.1, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield, thy exceeding great reward. You're going to get a big fat reward for your faithfulness, Abraham. Know what it is? It's me, God says. The Holy Spirit. Well, Acts 2.42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And that's what the church is all about, Charlie Brown. Acts 2.42. Simple, easy, we complicate it. It is incredibly simple. And we're going to talk more about that on Sunday. Verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together. (laughs) They had all things in common. And they began selling their property and their possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple... And breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. I've been asked before, how do I become a member of the Bridge Christian Fellowship? And I always answer, you don't. I'm sorry, these roles are closed. No. You don't become a member of the Bridge Christian Fellowship because we don't have a formal membership. I'm sorry, we don't. Okay, but you, do you have like a membership class? No. Well, how do you tell people what they need to know? Come on Sunday and we'll talk about it. We don't have a formal membership. Why doesn't your church have a formal membership? <laughs> First of all, because it's not my church. And second of all, because we're just a fellowship of believers within the much larger church. And God is the one who keeps track of the membership roles. God is the one who's adding to His church daily those who are being saved. He's writing their names and He's keeping a list and it's a ledger and it's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And when your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life because you came to faith in Jesus Christ, guess what? You're a member. You're not a member of the Baptist Church or the Methodist Church or the Catholic Church. Well, maybe you are in the past. It's not going to get you into heaven. I'm sorry, it's not. Hey, I'm Southern Baptist. Glad to meet you. I don't recognize an accent there, but that's nice that you're Southern Baptist. Whatever happened to the Northern Baptist, by the way? I'm just curious. Well, I'm first Reformed. feel kind of bad for the second Reformed. They're just not quite as good as, as the first church was. You know? Well, I'm Nazarene, so you grew up in the same place as Jesus. Fantastic. My membership is determined by faith in Jesus Christ, and God writes the name down, and I'm saved. So, 
One last thing about baptism. You're never baptized into a church. You are baptized into the church by the power and the salvation of God. By the way, he says he says that the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. You know what he doesn't say? That he was subtracting from their number. I love that. He just keeps adding and adding and adding and adding. Day by day, person by person, as his people stand up and share the gospel. Revelation 3.5 says, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. Are you willing to stand up for the gospel? Let's stand. Father, you are just so awesome. And your word is so amazing. And I've read Acts chapter 2, I don't even know how many times, Lord, but every time I just start to feel the hair on the back of my neck stand up, I start to get excited. Not because of what happened 2,000 years ago, Lord Jesus, but because of what's happening right now. Because of what you're doing right here in this tiny little fellowship of, of your greater church. I love, Father, that we can have the intimacy of fellowship in a localized body like this and yet have the confidence of being part of the, the biggest thing ever to happen on the planet. Part of the church. We still can't even fathom, Father, what that looks like. What that's really going to be like around your throne when we as one church, as one people... Praise the name of Jesus. Well, we choose to do that tonight. And Lord, we're standing before You in prayer asking that You will give us the outpouring, the strength, the power, the baptism of Your Holy Spirit that we might stand up just like Peter. Many of us no more schooled than Peter himself was. Some are far more schooled, but that education is not going to make the difference. Your Spirit, Lord. Your Spirit on Your people. Your Word tells us that Your people will volunteer freely in the day of Your power. Will we seek Your power, Your strength, Your anointing to be messengers of the Gospel? And I continue to pray as I do right now, Lord Jesus, pour out Your Spirit that we might be about Your work. In Jesus' name, Amen.